Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship program. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. The Family Office World takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Well, I am thrilled today to have David Nagy with me. David, I've heard him speak at many different family office conferences. David's been in finance for close to 20 years, starting in asset management, transitioning to fintech, and for the past decade, working with three different family offices, focusing on their early stage direct investment programs. For the past three years, David has been researching and investing in digital assets and blockchain, with investments that range from decentralized file storage, supply and logistics, to new formats to identify all the ways some of the most promising protocols in the ecosystem today. He recently joined a new digital asset management firm focused on the institutionalization of investment in this new emerging asset class and technology named ARCA, A-R-C-A. And that was co-founded by the co-founder of Wisdom Tree, Rain Steinberg. So it's a thrill to have you for two reasons. One, I really like you. And two, you are extraordinarily knowledgeable about a space that everybody is talking about, which is blockchain and cryptocurrency. So let's get into this. I guess I'll start with, with this question. So First of all, what about blockchain technology and digital assets was so important for you to go in early? Because you went in a hell of a lot earlier than I did and a lot earlier than most people. Thank you, Ron, for the, the opportunity to come on. And I like you too, so I appreciate the, uh, the shout out there. The reason why I really saw the writing on the wall with blockchain, I was at a family office in 2015. A member of the family had made an investment in one of the first crypto funds. Um, crypto is a word that we use, digital assets is a word that we use, blockchain is a word that we use. So it depends on the, the time of day and the, the day of the week. But it was a crypto fund. It was in 2015. And so many people within digital assets and crypto have this beautiful kind of origin story. It starts around 2011, 2012. They're reading the Bitcoin white paper. They have this massive epiphany that this is going to change the world and that, that this is where they have to focus all of their time and energy. And with me, it was more of a, oh my God, what did he just do? Because everything that was happening within Bitcoin around that time was negative headlines. 
you had things like the Silk Road incident where you had a platform that was very similar to, say, Amazon, and people were using Bitcoin to effectively do lots of nefarious affairs and things got pretty messy. You had something called the DAO hack, uh, and that was a fairly messy affair also. And so you had a lot of negative headline risk. And so out of pure defense, because I needed to protect the family members and any kind of reputation risk, I spent as much time as I could at that point in time researching Bitcoin. And that was about a six-month process, and that's not for everybody. But for me, during that process, I really started to learn the differences between centralized systems and decentralized systems. There's a lot of people out there who are what we would call decentralists, who believe that Bitcoin and blockchain is going to revolutionize the world, is going to tear down governments, is going to tear down all of these walls. And so that's not necessarily what I was thinking at the point in time. But I became very interested to learn more about how the internet in the early 90s and throughout the rest of the 2000s and to the point where today really started to evolve. And so effectively, the internet that we have today was not what we were supposed to have. Tim Berners-Lee in the, late, in the early 90s gave us the World Wide Web. And it was supposed to be a place where free dissemination of information and knowledge could be transferred. Today, what we have is we have ransomware, we have malware, we have pop-up blockers. We have all of these different things that kind of affect the way that we can use the internet. And also what happened is that you had some major companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon and some others out there kind of control a lot of the information flow. And they started to really control what you could see and what you couldn't see. They started to effectively give you free platforms to use. And it's really interesting when people, you know, I ask people about, you know, if it's free, what does that mean? When Google is giving you Gmail for free or Google Maps for free, that effectively means that you, you, you yourself are the product. They are mining all of your data. They know where you are. And this has come to light recently too in the news, whereas, you know, there was apparently an app within Google Mail, within Gmail, that over the last 10 years, someone looked at it and they basically were mining all of their transaction history. And so, you know, this notion of decentralized and centralized kind of came to fruition when I started to learn more about Bitcoin and learning about how centralized systems with the internet that we have today is really not what we were supposed to have. And the future of decentralized systems offered us the ability where you and I and everyone who's listening could actually start having control of their data, of their identity. Um, they could be enumerated if they produce content like this podcast or they go on Medium or they go on Twitter and they post something that's really interesting and gets thousands of likes. They can get enumerated for that. And so this notion of kind of returning to the public and giving people the ability to use this online discourse of information and giving them the ability to be incentivized for that and finally was really interesting to me. So that spurred the interest initially around 2015 after all of that kind of diligence and understanding that. And that led me to also learn how to code. I use something called Code Academy to effectively do a full stack and that's everything from HTML to CSS and then to Python. Not necessary, but it's something that really helped me understand more of the nuances within digital assets and crypto. So you really dove into this in a big way and you did it earlier than most people. You know, it was interesting. I was speaking at a conference at Stanford University and the person who presented right before me had four slides and there was a picture of a fire. There was a picture of a wheel 
there was the word internet and there was the word blockchain. And according to them at Stanford, they feel that blockchain is that transformative, that it's going to be that big of a game changer as the internet was. So question for you right now, where are we, in your opinion, in the evolution and maturity of blockchain and digital assets as an asset class? It's a great question. So a lot of people have tried to use the corollaries between now and the early internet. So people have said, okay, is it 1992? Is it 1993? Is it 1994? Have we moved from you know a mosaic to a Netscape situation where it was a very messy kind of user interface and then it becomes more kind of what we're used to today? In terms of blockchain maturation and kind of where we are right now in terms of the asset class, if we roll back, so Bitcoin has been around for now 10 years. It celebrated its birthday in January of this year, its 10-year birthday. Um, and so we know that that's been around for 10 years. And we know that it started off basically being worth pennies, if anything of that nature. The, the infamous Bitcoin pizza story has been out there, I think it was just on 60 Minutes. And it's had its ebb and flows. I think it's already had about two massive capitulations and rallies thus far. As of today, where we are right now, Bitcoin, as of this recording, has been hovering around 9000 uh, where it was around $3,100 in December of 2018. So that's a fairly massive recovery. Uh, the all-time high was around 21,000, which was reached around the Q4 of 2017. That was really driven up uh, by some, what we would call FOMO, fear of missing out, and that was attributed to a lot of retail investors, predominantly, in my opinion, because they missed out on the majority of the equity bull run that's happened over the last 10 years. There's always been this notion of, okay, if I go in now, it's going to start coming down, so I'm not going to do it. Or... You know, I've already missed the bus, so I'm not going to do it now. And so I think a lot of them missed it, and they said, not this time. And so they came in, and they came in hard, and they didn't know what they were doing. In terms of the, the maturation of the industry itself, it's quite interesting with the conversations I've had with those that have been in this since, you know, around 2011, 2012. When that retail bubble happened in 2017, the infrastructure was just not there. Coinbase was the major gateway uh, for majority of people to get into the space. And they had to start to do a lot of things manually. Uh, KYC and AML was a disaster. If you tried to do that, you know, during the, uh, I'd say, you know, probably September, October months of 17, it would take you four or five weeks to finally get authorized to use Coinbase to start buying Bitcoin. The infrastructure was just not there to support the interest level. And so what happened is that in 2018, you had a massive capitulation. The market cap reached about $850 billion in total. And then everyone said, well, what, what bags am I holding here? I don't understand. What am I actually holding here? And they dumped it uh, because the price started to capitulate and they just were fearful of what they had. And so what happened in 2018, which has prevailed into 2019, is that a lot of these projects started to raise significant amounts of money during the ICO craze that also came around the 2017 period. Some of them actually have been able to build significant platforms ones that make it easier for people to actually have an on-ramp to Bitcoin, ones that actually provide people to have a full node within their home without having to be a developer or someone of major technological sophistication. You've had a lot of significant infrastructure being built, and then you've also had institutions coming in and building. I'd like to think back and uh, talk about the Fidelity story. Fidelity, from what I understand, around 2014, Abby Johnson commissioned Fidelity Labs and they spent the last five years experimenting with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to the point where I think they tried to actually use it in their lunchrooms at points in time to try to buy a sandwich. And so they've 
recently launched their qualified custodian product. And so this is Fidelity. This is a company that has somewhere in the range of seven to eight trillion dollars in assets under administration. And they actually now have a qualified custodian product for, for Bitcoin first. That did not exist in 2017. You, know, you have other companies like NYC ICE that launched a company called Backed, which is working as a clearinghouse for Bitcoin. And they're working with partners like Starbucks. You have a company called Flexa, which is working now with Gemini, which is an exchange, which is now working with companies like Whole Foods. And so you have all of these different companies that are now providing the ability to use cryptocurrencies, which you didn't have in 2017. And so the maturation of the industry has dramatically increased over the last, I'd say the last six to eight months. Can you take a minute also, because at a lot of these family office conferences where you know we both speak, they lump blockchain and cryptocurrency together. So they're going to have a panel on blockchain and cryptocurrency. The family offices that I work with, that I represent, and the ones that you've worked with, they're not into the weeds like you are. Can you take a minute and kind of explain the difference between blockchain and cryptocurrency? Because they're certainly not one and the same. No, they're not. And this is an interesting kind of thematic and narrative that has happened. And I've been in those rooms with other family offices that say, hey, I like blockchain, but I don't like this Bitcoin stuff. What that means is that there are two different types of blockchain. There are two different flavors, if you want to call it that. There's the private blockchain, and then there is the public blockchain. And the public blockchain is what is associated with things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other ones out there. Private blockchains, however, are used by companies like JP Morgan. They just launched their initiative, JP Morgan Coin. Facebook is dabbling in the space too. Samsung and some other large corporations are dabbling with the space. What the difference is, is that a public blockchain is one that is decentralized. You have nodes, you have validators is what we call them. People running sophisticated rigs throughout the world that are trying to validate transactions that are immediately happening every second. That is the decentralized version, and that is where you have a trustless, permissionless, distributed ledger. On a permissioned ledger, which is called a private blockchain, you effectively have maybe about 10 or 12 nodes, and what we call them, again, validators. These are entities that are known, quote unquote, to the entity that is creating this blockchain, and they are the ones that are trying to validate those transactions or validate the existence of a person or something of that nature. They're trying to do the validation. And so there is the instance where this is not you know, using the world's compute power. This is not something that is actually very safe in many people's opinions. The private blockchain has what some people consider more of a higher attack vector. So if you can knock down someone who is a known validator, you know, again, there's probably 10 or 12 entities out there. If you can get access to one of those, then you can maybe probably take down the rest of the other 10 or 11 fairly easy. With the idea of a permissionless distributed ledger, where you have using all of the world's compute power and you have all these people throughout the world that are, you know, basically validating transactions throughout the world. If you take down one of them, you have to take thousands down other. And so there's this notion of a 51% attack and there is this you know, notion of civil attacks. At the end of the day for family offices, it comes down to security. The, the notion of a private blockchain today is less secure, hypothetically, than a public blockchain. Again, because if you knock down one on a private blockchain, you have access to maybe 10 or 11 others that you can get access to and, and take down the whole system and control the data coming out of it. And so it really comes down to a security measure between the public and private blockchain. So how does you know, a family office, if they're interested in this space, how do they begin to invest in the space? Is it via funds or is it direct investments? How would you guide somebody 
to get into your world from the family office perspective? So if we go back into kind of where we are, the state of the state of, you know, kind of digital assets and blockchain. In 2017, there was maybe 25 or 30 funds that existed. And then obviously during the retail run-up that I alluded to before, you started having many more people come in and start funds. You had a lot of people who made a few million dollars on the retail side who honestly thought they were the next Warren Buffetts. They got very uh, kind of foolish and uh, kind of uh, very uh, full of themselves and they thought they can create funds and they didn't really have any idea about fiduciary responsibility, about governance, about risk management. As of today, you have north of 500 funds within the market. About 85% of those funds are what we would define as more liquid markets. And that's effectively trading the cryptocurrencies that are in the market right now. And there's roughly about 2,000 of which, honestly, only about 50 or 70 of them are even worth even taking a look at because of the liquidity. Quick question there, because I've heard this a lot. Of all the coins out there, you say there's roughly 2,000. In your opinion, how many are worth zero? Well, I would have to say that a majority of them, and I'd say probably plus 90% of them are, are worthless. So 90% of the, of the cryptocurrency out there is worthless right now. Yeah, I, w- I would say that's a fair assessment. And that's judged on a few different things. That's judged on liquidity. Again, there's about 100 exchanges right now. And there was a recent report by Bitwise, which is a great company out there that's doing, effectively, they're trying to create ETFs. And they did a, a bunch of research reports and they looked at all of the different exchanges and they saw that there was wash trading and there were spoofs and there was a bunch of other nefarious things. And they were able to identify 10 that were of high esteem, that had good liquidity, that had good uh, governance measures, that had proper management. And so, you know, we really as an industry are now focusing on those 10 as really the core. And so, you know, the 2000, when you look at kind of the, the state and health of them, you know, I'd say, you know, as I said, 90% of them really have very little to no liquidity. And then, you know, the ones that do have, you know, some liquidity, um, you start to look at their actual projects. What are they building? You know, what does their development community look like? What are their, uh, you know, in terms of things on GitHub? What are their commits? Um, those are, you know, those are jargons, basically, how many people are actually working on this project? And so you start looking at developer numbers. You know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of these others out there at the top of the heap have the most, you know, kind of developers. And so you have to really start to discern kind of, you know, the development community who's actually working on this on a daily basis, who's trying to make it better, additionally to the liquidity. So yeah, I'd say roughly over 90% of them are, are fairly worthless. At the top of the heap, you know, if you were looking at, you know, one of the places that a lot of us look at, even though it's basically become a place where there's been you know, some controversies about, you know, the metrics that they use, but one of the places that most people use is something called coin market cap. And so if you look at Bitcoin has a market cap of over 150 billion, Ethereum has over 28 billion, their volume is healthy in terms of their 24 hour volume, XRP, which is associated with Ripple. Bitcoin Cash, which is a fork of Bitcoin, and we haven't talked about forks, but effectively on these on these public blockchains, if a group of developers doesn't necessarily like the way that things are going, they can actually fork it and, and create something new. And so that happened with Bitcoin Cash. EOS is another one uh, in the top five. And then you have Litecoin, Binance Coin, and a few others out there. So those are some of the, the top ones out there in terms of market cap, in terms of uh, 24-hour volume. Looking at it through the lens of your family office, you hear about Bitcoin. My daughters know about Bitcoin. You hear some people are making money. 
is this just outright gambling to some of them? And some of them, it's like, no, this is actually the future. We are at the beginning stages of the next iteration of how everything's going to play out in the monetary system. So in your opinion, let's go out 10 years. How do you see this playing out? I love that question. So one of the things that I look at is, you know, kids. I've got two kids and you mentioned, you know, obviously your daughters and, you know, they're the future. And so what do we see with, you know, kids? There's a game called Fortnite, which some of the listeners might be familiar with. Uh, anyone who's got a kid and it ranges from, you know, 10 to 15 or 16 probably knows what Fortnite is. There's 185 million Fortnite players right now. And the data shows that about 49% of them are from the ages of 13 to 30. So roughly around 90 million plus that are kind of in uh, the future of our economic system coming into, into play. What these kids do is they use something called V-Bucks, which is what we would define as a digitally native asset. Uh, it's you know something like a non-fungible token, which is a crypto jargon word too. And so this is a digitally native asset. This is something that is you know you can only use it to buy things on Fortnite, and you can give them new clothes and new accessories, and everyone uses this. And so when you think about adoption, and you think about kind of what the future lays out, that 90 million plus subsect of kids that we're now you know playing this game on a daily basis, this is the way that they are programmed. They, they are programmed to you know, effectively use a digitally native asset to purchase things. If you give them or if you tell them about gold, for instance, they're probably going to look at you as fairly alien. They're going to look at you like you have a Betamax or a VCR. They're used to on-demand services. They're used to Netflix and they're used to Amazon. They're used to all of these things that can happen immediately. You know, I, I'd be hard to say that if any of them, one of my colleagues, Jeff Dorman, he has a kid too. Uh, we were talking about sports and, and memorabilia. You know, I used to have baseball cards. You know, he was showing his son's, uh, uh, his son a baseball card and, you know, looked at him puzzled, like, what is this? But then Jeff showed him, you know, a, a digitally native asset, a digital baseball card that he had on his phone that he had purchased from one of these kind of uh, dis uh, decentralized apps. And the son was like, wow, this is amazing. So this is the way that kids are now thinking of everything is on the phone, everything is on the mobile, you know, everything is on demand. And, you know, the, the more kind of the real assets that you and I and everyone else that's possibly listening are used to are kind of becoming the things of the past. Again, it feels like, you know, the, the transition from Betamax to VCR, and then all of a sudden CDs came and then everyone started using Napster and everything became on your computer or on your iPhone. And that's just the way it was anymore. Um, owning records became kind of a relic. And so you think about 10 years out, I think that's probably going to be the same type of trajectory, but it's even going to be faster now because of the adoption, because of how many kids are using these things on a daily basis. Well, the, you know, you made some really good points. And the amazing thing to me is like my daughter, she's 15. She will watch a program on ABC on her phone in front of a 90 inch plasma TV with the, with the chair perched perfectly angled to watch on the TV, but she prefers to do it on the phone. And what's interesting is that if you look back, the difference between our generation and our children's generation, I can't see a bigger change than you can go back, I would argue, to the Industrial Revolution, a bigger change in how the world's working 
because of this internet, because of now blockchain, would you agree that from our generation to our kids' generation, the change has just been monumental? And then going from our children's generation to the next generation, do you see that increasing exponentially based on what's happening with technology? I do. I wrote about this a few months ago. I started thinking about 30 years out. You know, I actually titled a paper you know, saying something about 2053. I chose 2053, I think, because I think it was Isomoth or someone that you know, was talking about 2053 or something of that future kind of relevance. And you know, in the future, you know, I started to kind of postulate how some of these things within blockchain and crypto would actually start working in our favor. There are concepts out there that are fairly interesting. There's something called prediction markets, and there's a, a project called Augur, which is a prediction market. And on Augur, you can effectively, you have what's called the, the wisdom of the crowd. You have thousands of people who are participating in these markets. Um, and creating new markets every single day. And there's ones for weather, there's ones for political forecasting, there's ones for event hedging. Um, you know, there's ones, you know, saying, will Trump win in 2020? And then people, you know, have to actually stake some of their, their cryptocurrencies. Uh, and there's a native one called Rep for Augur. They have to actually stake it to actually create these markets. And so, you know, prediction markets, imagine that in, in 30 or 40 years, I don't know about you, but when I use my, my phone app to check the weather, it's almost always wrong. And imagine if you were able to use prediction markets where you had everyone around you kind of geolocated and actually predicting on what the weather would be like and, you know, using some science and using some math when you know, maybe there were some meteorologists who were participating and the data could be better and it could be more social. So that's something that can definitely happen. In terms of the news, there's been this narrative of fake news and there are companies or projects, something called True Story out there. True Story, again, uses the notion of kind of consensus and uses more of a decentralized kind of infrastructure. And, you know, if a news item comes around, people can actually vote on it to see if it's actually, you know, kind of fake news or not. And so the quality of news information we can start receiving could be far much better. And so there are other things out there, too. There's another company called Foam, which is basically creating a decentralized GPS. And so there's all of these different things that are happening together where, you know, incentive models, people can be incentivized, again, for participating in these networks and providing the data and the infrastructure for these networks. And so these things didn't happen. And so when you think about it, you know, kind of concurrently from where we are today to then, because there are over 7 billion people on this planet and roughly 50% of them currently have a smart device in their, in their pockets these days, the adoption rates could be far faster than we did when we were in the 90s when we had to deal with the kind of the home PC. It was expensive. It was clunky. You had to have space in your apartment or your house for it. It was a novelty item. And basically what you just used it for was you know, kind of chatting with other people on AOL. And then all of a sudden it became an apparatus, it became a utility and you could start buying things, you could start learning things from it. And then, then we moved to mobile and when we moved to mobile, then you started seeing a real pro, uh, kind of a proliferation of the information and you know, moving around and moving around freely. And it becomes easier for people to start kind of getting into this world. You think about the kids out there who can you know, now have access to a laptop for about $100 using Raspberry Pi as a architecture piece into it. You know, there is so much that is happening right now in terms of the evolution and adoption of technology, which will feed into what's happening within the kind of the blockchain narrative. It's fascinating. And the world is moving just so quickly. Curious as to your thoughts as far as looking from the lens of a family office. I'm seeing more and more of the families that we represent 
maybe about two years ago, they were all asking me about it. Very few people were doing anything in it. Then for about a year and a half, basically nobody spoke about it. Over the past six months, at least what I've noticed with the families, you know, we represent about 100 family offices that I've seen, I'm getting more and more questions about not just Bitcoin or blockchain or crypto, but just the, the whole space in general. Are you seeing that as well? I am. And I think that's attributed again when I mentioned things like Fidelity, like Backed, uh, Circle, and some of these other institutions. You've seen Goldman trying to get into the space. You've seen some of the legacy players in TD Ameritrade with X. There's been some fairly large companies that really tried to build into the space. And then you have headline news like Yale Endowment and David Swenson investing in a few different funds. You've had a few endowments investing in some of these crypto funds now that are kind of the top quartile. And so you're starting to see more institutional involvement in the space that goes hand in hand with the kind of deployment of these platforms that are being built to really support it. Um, additionally, you're starting to see some things on the regulatory side. There was some clarity uh, provided about Ethereum um, and about Bitcoin. We're still waiting for the regulators to kind of figure things out. But you know, we are definitely seeing some things on the regulatory side, and hopefully that we're going to start to get some more clarity from them. That's we're still in kind of TBD on that. There's been other kind of instances where you know taxation was a big problem. You know, if I use Bitcoin or if I buy Bitcoin and there's a realized gain, and if I you know buy something else or what is my taxation? And there weren't a lot of tax services out there for family office before. Now there are there's a robust amount of them that have come to market over the last year, and so a lot of those issues. Um, uh, that were kind of plugging people up, that were kind of preventing them from entering the market, are starting to get resolved. And so we're in a different place than we were in 2017. And the amount of people, you know, I, I think this is interesting. This is an interesting point. I brought up that Bitcoin hit 9,000, you know, recently in the last few hours. That's really not an indicator for me. Um, I actually write something called Signal to Noise, where I kind of tried to decipher what's happening on a weekly basis. And a lot of the, the signals to me are the people that are coming into the space. A gentleman recently left Bridgewater. He was a COO and he went to a company called True Digital, leaving such a prestigious place where you, know, you basically can end your career and obviously retire probably quite early. And he left to go to a crypto company. You've had people, you know, 10 or 15 different partners at Goldman Sachs go and leave and build different companies. There's one, Jutha Kachow, who built a company in your hometown in Chicago called LedgerX, which provides a derivatives market. And so these are the things that I've been watching. These are the things that other people hopefully have been watching, that there is real people coming in, that it's not just about the decentralized kind of ideologies, about you know kind of tearing down governments and tearing down economic systems. There are real people who have been practitioners, that have been founders, that have been investors, that are coming into the space now that build real platforms. And I think when you see that over and over again, that really starts building a narrative for people to say, okay, this is a time where I have to take this seriously and I actually have to build a digital asset strategy. Right. And, you know, I could talk for hours because it's so fascinating, but, you know, we do need to wrap up. I would say that, you know, in the conferences that I attend, you probably do as good, if not the best job, basically explaining it in a way that makes sense. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Thank you for the shout out on the podcast. It's called Base Layer, and I've been at it for about six months now, trying to provide investors and family offices a little bit more insight into the infrastructure pieces that I alluded to. You can reach me. I am now a principal at Arca, as you alluded to, which is a holding company that was started by the co-founder of Wisdom Tree, Rain Steinberg, along with Jeff Dorman, who was a 20-year veteran 
from places like Lehman and Merrill and Citadel. And then Phil Liu, who is a 20-year securities law vet at Manette and Equinox Funds. They started a holding company called Arca about a year and a half ago. I joined about three months ago, leaving the family office world to go focus my full attention on the space. And so you can reach me at davidn at ar.ca, or you can reach me on Twitter if you guys are on Twitter. I am at the handle davidjn79. Um, and so that gives away my age. Uh, <laughs> and so you can reach me either at Twitter or an email, or you can listen to the podcast and always happy to provide my insights. I realize, you know, as you mentioned before, this is a very complex kind of environment and a situation to understand, you know, spending week over week trying to explain it to my 62 year old father-in-law who is from Russia was really how I was able to kind of make it easy for people because if I had to explain it to him every Sunday during breakfast, I can explain it to the most sophisticated investor. <laughs> well, you do a terrific job and actually you're fantastic for the industry. So again, pleasure to have you. Uh, very much appreciate you being on and thank you very much for your time. You've been terrific. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.